I think I'm on. Uh, if you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah. Just before we look at God's Word this morning, um, I just wanted to share with you something um, personal. Uh, Angie and I had to quickly duck up to Sydney this week. Uh, we left on Thursday night, got back yesterday afternoon um, for the funeral um, of the child of one of our elders uh, in Cornerstone, Strathfield. And um, it was tr- doubly tragic because this couple had wanted to have a baby since, uh, well, for, for ages. They'd gone through IVF, had one child. And then at 39 weeks um, pregnancy, she went in a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the heartbeat was irregular. They said, come back the next day. Uh, they were again delayed. By the time they came in on Sunday, the baby had died. So she had to have a cesarean and at 39 weeks pregnant, um, deliver a baby. We uh, went up, uh, as I said, on Thursday night. Um, it was, you know, one of the really, I think, one of the saddest funerals I've ever been to. Uh, the elder himself um, talked to the whole congregation that was there about the lessons that he'd learned and one of the first lessons that he said he'd learnt was forgiveness. Uh, because the medical staff had acknowledged that what they had done, they'd failed to actually, you know, treat his wife properly. Uh, and he said, you know, to them, I forgive you. And uh, as we were, I actually had the honour and privilege of officiating at the graveside. And uh, as they were lowering this little casket into the ground, Um, this was the Bible reading. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the request of uh, my brother, elder, and friend, we all sang... Um, Jesus loves me, this I know. Because that's the song he sings to all of his children each and every night, or his other child. Now, can I just say, friends, that would be cruel, wouldn't it, if not for the resurrection of Jesus? And it made me think, as we were all grieving together, uh, that why do we come to church? Is it just routine? A rhetorical question, why do you come to church this morning? To catch up with friends? Can I say it's because we meet with the living God who has defeated death. That's why we go to straight, such effort on a cold morning to get out of bed, uh, to meet with people, to sing God's praises because we worship a living God who has defeated death. And this morning we're going to hear about that living God. And, and God's purpose for him from the book of Malachi. So if you open your book, uh, Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. I'm, oh, sorry, Malachi. Sorry, I did a Christine. No, I did a Mark. Uh, Micah, Micah chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to read from verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 5. And this is God's word. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame 
I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counsellor perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labour? Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labour, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Apathra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. Let's pray. Father, what a joy and delight it is to come together on this, the Lord's Day, the day in the week where you broke the power of sin and death once and for all. As we look to you and especially to what the Lord Jesus has done, it's like we put on a pair of glasses and we see clearly all of what you predicted, all of what you prophesied. Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes, 
and that we would see Jesus. We pray that you would help us to know all in a deeper way, not just in knowledge, Lord, and mental understanding, but in a real way, all that he has done for us. May we know the power of your spirit at work in our lives. And Father, we pray that, well, you know, Lord, where each person is at this morning, the needs of their heart, what word of encouragement uh, we need, what strengthening um, we need, perhaps even what rebuke. And so we pray that we would be as Christ to one another, that we would be a blessing. And we ask this in his name. Amen. There's a story, a true story, about Sir Thomas Beecham, the famous conductor from the, well, basically early last century in England. Apparently, he was in a food hall of this major English department store where across the crowded room, he saw a woman waving to him. She was a very elegant woman, a woman of nobility, very well-dressed, but he thought, oh, no, I don't know your name. Have you ever had one of those times where you know someone's face, you clearly recognise them at a party or something, and you're just thinking, and your wife's not next to you or your husband, and you, so you, you can't say, do you remember who that is? And you know that they're coming to you, they're going to talk to you, and it's going to be intensely embarrassing when you don't know their name. Well, this was one of those times. And so to avoid embarrassment, he tried to make a quick exit before she actually got to him. Only he was too late. The next thing he knew, she was standing right in front of him. Good morning, Sir Thomas. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you, Sir Sir Thomas said. Oh, very well. How's your family? He said, my family's fine. How's your family? Uh, The lady replied, oh, yes, we're getting along fine. You know my brother's been ill for a couple of days, but he's back to work now. At this, Sir Thomas saw his opportunity and he said, oh, look, would you please forgive me? But would you please tell me again, what is it that your brother is doing with himself these days? To which the lady said, somewhat surprised, oh, he's still the king. (laughs) Now, you can just imagine the embarrassment that that must have caused him. He was talking to the king of England's sister. And he didn't even know it. I'm sure we've all done something like that at one point in our lives. I had a lady in my congregation back in Sydney who was talking to Russell Crowe at a party and she didn't know who he was. He said he was an actor and she goes, oh, have you been in any famous movies? (laughs) And he said, oh, I've been in a few. (laughs) And it wasn't until the car trip home that her husband said, that was Russell Crowe. And she goes, yes, I know, he's a lovely young man. He's an actor, did you know that? (laughs) See, I'm sure we've all done something like that in our lives. You might have been in a social situation or at an important occasion and you just didn't realise who it was you were seated next to or who you were talking with. I think we can all look back on those times with humour. But just imagine if you did something like that with God. What would be the ramification if you came into his presence and you didn't give him the honour or the acknowledgement that he deserves? 
That's just one of the questions that I think arises from Micah chapters 4 and 5. Because as you can see, it's really all about the kingdom of what the Lord or the one true king has planned for his people. The problem is, though, is that sometimes it's really difficult to know for sure what exactly or what time period Micah is specifically referring to. Because sometimes it's in the future. Sometimes it's in the present. And then all of a sudden he gets excited and he starts talking about the future again. And this can make it a little difficult to discern how one particular paragraph or section of Micah might relate to the other. Because remember, the book of Micah is covering a period of 60 plus years. Martin Luther, the great church reformer of the 16th century, summarised his own frustration in typical Lutheran fashion like this. He said about the minor prophets, quote, they have a queer way of talking, like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. Well, at least he's honest. But while Luther might be being brutally honest, I think he's being more than a little harsh. For the reason why what Micah says is not always straightforward is because, as I said, he is summarising everything that the Lord had for him to say over a period of 50, 60 years. So it's not like he wrote this all down, I, I don't think, at once. Instead, the book of Micah has been carefully crafted to include everything that the Lord God had for him to say. And as I think I'll show and show you next week, just because I say that doesn't mean that it's not inspired, and, but more than that, that it's not purposely built for an overarching message, but more on that next week. The first aspect we see presented to us then is that the future kingdom of God is going to be gloriously restored. The future kingdom of God is going to be gloriously restored. Because as we've been seeing, Israel is threatened to be under God's judgment, but that is not going to be the last word. We started to look at this last week when in verses 1 to 5 we read about the mountain of the Lord. If you were in church last week, then you'll remember how Micah describes all of these nations streaming to it. And as we looked at last week, I think that's a reality of what's happening today. Today, as Simon mentioned before, that little rock has become a mountain. And people from all over the earth, in fact, there's not a country on earth where there are not people meeting this Lord's Day, whether it's in a couple of hours' time or has already been, who are not worshipping this king. And finally, there being this absolutely marvellous reign of peace, which I think, as I explained last week too, is the millennium. It's the time where Jesus reigns right now as king. And as I said, I think that's the period we're living in right now. Because if you look back to the start of chapter 4, it's talking about the last days, and the New Testament says we are living in the last days. Book of Hebrews, chapter 1. In the, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers and prophets in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. That's the way that Micah chapter 4 opens, and it's exactly how 
the New Testament describes things. What verses 6 to 8 are saying then is that in the future, the kingdom of God is once again going to be gloriously restored to the people of Israel, except the kingdom will no longer be in just one little place, worshipping on one little mountain in one little building, but it will have a universal scope. People from every nation will flood into it. And as I said last week, and as I'll say again today, that is us. I look around the room and I don't see, I don't think, a Jew amongst us. And yet we're all worshipping the Messiah. We're all worshipping and singing praises to the Jewish king. The Lord will once again regather and restore them from being sent into exile. For the Lord is still their king. Now, just look at what he says in the second part in verse 7. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. From that day and forever. In fact, look at what he goes on to say in verse 8. Because not only will the Lord himself continue to rule over them, but in the future they themselves will have the kingdom restored to them. Verse 8, As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And can I just say, that's one of the things that the disciples often misunderstood, wasn't it? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Should we pick up swords? Should we fight against our enemies? Should we make it a temporal kingdom? And Jesus says, no, because the kingdom I have is really not of this earth. It will include all people from every nation who will stream to the heavenly temple, which is actually the mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion. So that's the first thing we learn. One day, many years after Micah spoke, a glorious and universal kingdom would be restored. And you've got to imagine, they're just about to be taken into exile. There was no guarantee that this was going to happen. And yet you and I, we now go, oh, well, of course that happened. That was Jesus. We've got 2020 vision in hindsight. The second thing we learn, though, is the complete opposite. And this is where you can start to see what Martin Luther was talking about. Because all of a sudden, Micah, I don't think he's talking he's about the future, he's talking about the present. The reason why I can say that so confidently is because four times in the next six verses, Micah uses the word now. Verse 9, why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Verse 10, writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in an open field. Verse 11, but now many nations are gathered against you. Then finally, in verse 1 of chapter 5, which significantly in the Hebrew version of the Bible was actually numbered verse 14 of chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1, Now marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a, a siege is laid against it. The NIV translation doesn't include the term now, but if you've got a more literal translation like the ESV, it does. Not that that really matters because the period in time that uh, the prophet Micah is speaking about is clearly not regarding the future but about his present historical reality. That is that what was going to happen to the kingdom of God in Micah's own day. And the point was before it was going to be restored to them, it's pretty logical when you think about it, it was first of all going to be removed from them. 
So before restoration, removal. Sometimes you really need to do uh, that with people to help them, I think, understand um, their need of Jesus and forgiveness. I think what the order in which God inspires Micah to put these words down, I think actually is instructive at this point. Let me explain. It's no good telling people the good news about Jesus and salvation unless they first can truly recognise and appreciate the perilous condition that they are in. They will never understand what it means to be found unless they first realise that they are lost. I read a really powerful story about this uh, once uh, from a famous American pastor and preacher. Uh, I'm not necessarily recommending everything he does here, but it'll, you'll get the point. He's, uh, he met a man who lived not very far from the church and he would often bump him to him down the street. They'd catch up, they'd talk. Obviously, this man knew that he was a pastor and he'd talk to him about Christ and he'd talk to him about the gospel. Each time he did, though, the man would simply brush, brush him off. He'd laugh. He'd say that he didn't need Christ. It was a crutch. And uh, he'd reject every time the offer of the gospel. Uh, he was a member of a certain well, let's just say social organisation, and he believed that if he lived up to the high principles they set, then he would be right with God. Well, one day the man was struck down with a very, very serious and, as it turned out, terminal illness. And so the pastor went to see him. The man was told that by this stage he probably had days, if not hours, to live. And so the pastor prayed that he might have wisdom to know how to talk to this in his words, proud, independent, self-made man about his need of Christ and forgiveness. What do you say to somebody like that? Now, again, I'm not necessarily recommending you say or do this when someone is dying, but this is what he did. pastor came in. He quietly sat down by the dying man's bedside. And after a little while, he said, do you mind if I just stay here and and a few minutes and watch you. And the man said, no, no, that's, that's fine, but why? Well, the pastor said, I've always wondered what it would mean to die without Christ. I've known you for several years now as a man who consistently said he would never need Christ and that his obligations to the lodge were enough and I just want to see how you'll die now. He said, I'd like to see a man come to the end of his life that way and see what it is like. And in particular, whether trusting in himself would provide him with the comfort and the strength required to face his own death. So do you mind if I sit here for a while and see? Well, the man looked at him like a wounded animal and said, you wouldn't mock a dying man, would you? Now, of course, that was the exact opposite of what the pastor was trying to do. So again, he pressed the man to consider Christ and he explained to him that he could never save himself, but he must only trust in Jesus to be saved. Well, in the grace of God, great tears ran down this proud man's face as he looked at the pastor in agonised silence. The man replied that his mother had taught him all of those things about Christ and his gospel, but he had abandoned them. 
And then as his life was ebbing away by God's grace, the man said, but I want to return. Do you think Christ would accept me? He said, of course he would, with open arms. So the man believed and he prayed. And he even asked that the members of his extended family be brought into the room so that they could hear of his testimony of returning faith in Christ. And he especially asked then that his story be told at his funeral, which was just a few days later. Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the prophet Micah, I think, is employing the same kind of shock tactics here. He alternates between the future and the present, and then just in a moment he'll jump back to the future again because he wants to snap God's people out of their spiritual lethargy. He's deliberately trying to shock them. See, he's not being illogical. He's being wise. From verse 9 of chapter 4 through to chapter 5, verse 1, it's all about the kingdom being removed, of what will happen when God's people are sent into exile and Jerusalem will be destroyed. Before that actually happens, though, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, who I've been telling you so much about lately, will be miraculously defeated. And again, this event was so important, it wasn't mentioned once or twice in the Bible, it was mentioned three times, where 185,000 battle-hardened soldiers had their lives taken away in a single evening. But then after that, the Babylonians did come and act as God's agent of wrath. Now, all of this leads up to one of the most famous sections in the book of Micah, and that is uh, verses 2 to 5 of chapter 5. Most people will say, uh, if you say to them, hey, what do you think about the book of Micah? They'll normally respond with, isn't that the place where Jesus tells you where Jesus would be born? And then if they know their Bibles really, really well, they might mention Micah 6 verse 8. And he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God willing, we'll get to that passage in a couple of weeks. But in verses 2 to 5 of chapter 4 are just as famous. And it's worth slowing down through them a bit more carefully. Because as we've already seen, and I hope you've already seen, in our New Testament reading, this is explicitly fulfilled in Jesus where the nations come and they pour into Jerusalem and they worship a little child. Why do they worship him? Because he's God. He's God in the flesh. And you know what they give him? They give him all their wealth. They give him all their treasures. They give him gold. They give him incense. And they give him myrrh. Now, have you ever thought about why do they give those gifts? Have you ever been to a baby shower? I've been to about six of them. Right? And my own family. No one's ever given me gold. No one's ever given me incense. And no one's definitely never given me myrrh. Do you know why? Because you give gold to a king. You give incense to a priest. And you give myrrh to somebody who's going to die. Could you imagine, again, definitely not suggesting this, but the next baby shower you go to, you give a little coffin... That would be the equivalent of giving myrrh. Oh, you're going to need this one day. This will come in handy. 
you'd be thinking, get out. You're destroying all the hope that I have for this little baby. That's what the Magi were saying. One day, at the very end of this child's life, this child was born to die, is what they're saying. Because they realise, by God's grace, this is the saviour of the world. This is the suffering servant. This is the Christ. The first thing that we really learn is not only where in the future this great and glorious king will be born, but even here you get a tantalising glimpse as to his divine nature. Look carefully with me. And if you've got your own Bibles, you can underline this in verse 2. It says this, But you, Bethlehem Apathra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for, for me one who will be the ruler of Israel. That's true. That's what happened. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's all so far so good. But then it immediately goes on to say this, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You see, this little baby that was born in Bethlehem, he didn't just start to exist then, he existed before. He is the ancient of days, if that rings a bell. This is God Almighty becoming flesh, or what theologians say, incarnate. Now, that's a pretty obvious Significant statement, isn't it? I mean, not only do we find out where this king is going to be born in Bethlehem, but he was not just going to be another human ruler, as great as that was. He was going to be the king to end all kings. For it was going to be the Lord God Almighty himself, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You see, Jesus... In John's Gospel, remember he says the seven I am's? He's not just, again, saying before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the God that met with Moses out of the burning bush. I am is standing before you. Now, some people think that this is just a reference to the kingdom. That, you know, it has this long illustrious line. Maybe that's what it means. Whose lineage is from of old rather than his person. A bit like, you know, Queen Elizabeth at the present is a direct descendant of a very long and famous line of descendants. But for those with eyes to see, it's saying something much, much more. For whoever the king of the kingdom is, if I can put it reverently, it's not like he was born yesterday. No, his origins are from of old, from ancient times. Another prophet who ministered at exactly the same time as Micah was Isaiah. You remember the really famous passage in Isaiah 9? Isaiah and Micah are contemporaries. And he referred, we refer to this passage, unfortunately, really only at Easter time. Oh, sorry, at Christmas. And when we focus on Jesus' birth. But the Gospel of Matthew again refers to um, Jesus in this way as Emmanuel, God with us. 
Isaiah 9, verse 6, we're told, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, isn't that incredible? Clearly, when the kingdom is finally restored, its king is going to be someone really, really, really special. The second thing we learn, though, is found in verse 3. And once again, this goes back in time to the present to set the scene for the people who, when they first read it, would have realised it was still a long way off. Before all of this takes place, we're told, therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. What that simply means is that it's going to take a long time before the kingdom of God is fully realised. Until that happens, it's going to look like God's kingdom has been abandoned. They won't have the power, they won't have the influence, and they definitely won't have the authority like they did in the past. Instead, the people of God, well, they'll be like a woman in labour. She will be in utter pain and helplessness until the child that she is carrying is finally delivered. See, the Messiah will come through God's spouse, his bride, Israel. And in the fullness of time, he will be born. The serpent crusher will will come. When that day finally comes, though, well, it's going to be extraordinary. Take a look again at what Micah says in verse 4. It's hard to think of a more stunning summary of what the nature of that fully realised kingdom will be. Verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. How can I do justice to just even this single verse of what Micah is saying? I'm not really sure. Please turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Colossians chapter 1 for a minute. Colossians 1, and I'm just going to read to you from verses 19 through to verse 20. It's where Paul says this. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I just love these couple of verses. They're such a great way of unpacking what verses 4 and 5, or verses 4 and so so on in Micah chapter 5 would said would take place. Micah, I think, just summarises it just so brilliantly in verse 5. And he will be their peace. He will be their peace. That's what Jesus has achieved. It's what in Hebrew is called shalom. Or another more common way of describing it is to simply say salvation. Reconciliation. That's what Jesus has come to do. He has come to save us from our sins and so bring us peace with God. He has come, as he says in verse um, 10 of John 10, that we might have life and have it to the full. 
a life free from the penalty and slavery to sin based on the foreknowledge of God the Father. A life lived with the fruit and power of his spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, now lives inside you and me. And an eternal life that has been purchased and guaranteed by the work of Jesus the King, the one whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, all of that goes to the very heart of what Micah means when he says, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. From then, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. Now, friends, isn't that exactly or precisely what we're seeing fulfilled in our eyes today? The greatness of Jesus is extending to the very ends of the earth. To Niger. I mean, just stop and think about it for a second. Here was Micah writing over two and a half thousand years ago in a little city in the Middle East, right around the time that his hometown was being destroyed, and the whole nation was going off into exile. The whole nation. Two and a half thousand years ago. And everything that Micah said was going to happen took place. The kingdom was restored, removed. And then finally, once again, it was restored, just as Micah said. All over the world, people from every nation are coming before the heavenly temple and mountain of the Lord, and they are entering into God's kingdom. It's almost unbelievable. But that is precisely what has and continues to take place. It's just altogether marvellous, isn't it? But let me ask you this question this morning personally. Do you have shalom? Do you have peace with God? That is, have you received Christ's love and mercy and forgiveness yourself? Do you know him as your saviour? Do you follow him as your Lord? Would you recognise him as king? Or would you do a Beecham? Would you be embarrassed and not really know who he was? That is what this passage I think is really challenging us with, friends. It's that we would trust and obey Jesus. For nothing, absolutely nothing, can stop his kingdom from advancing. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's the prayer we pray, isn't it? He taught us to pray. That the growth of his kingdom would be our passion. That the glory of his name would be our focus. And that the extension of his kingdom would be our life's great work. Well, on that note, why don't we spend some time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we worship you this morning and we bend our knee before Jesus, the great King over all the earth, the one who is the King of all the kings and Lord of all the lords. We marvel at how your word so accurately predicted exactly what would happen. Lord, we're humbled by it. 
Lord, we're comforted by the promises of salvation and all that you have done to give us peace because you have taken upon yourself the punishment which we deserved. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. How can we ever plumb the depths of what you have done on the cross? How can we ever fully exhaust the meaning of your resurrection? Lord, we pray that you, by your grace, would give us a deeper knowledge of those things, of how much we are loved in Christ. And in response, Lord, may we, may we love and lay down our lives as a living sacrifice to you, the one who first sacrificed himself for us. Fill us with your spirit, empower us to live for the glory and honour of your holy name. For we pray this through the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing.